You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. Can you, you guys can hear me? Awesome. Great. Uh, this time, uh, I already see it's happening, but our threes and fours, your olds are dismissed to your nursery classes. Thank you so much for being in here and singing with us. Uh, let me invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's not a big deal. We've got copies. Uh, so if you just want to slip up your hand, and one of our church members will get you a Bible if you don't have one. Hopefully. Yes, it's happening. Sweet. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be beginning in verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I'll be reading, like I said, in verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 5. So let's read the text, follow along as I read, and then we'll pray for the Spirit's help to understand His words of life. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows. He knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just come before you just acknowledging our need like we just sang, you have the words of life. In this book that we just read, in your revealed word, are the words of wisdom, are the words of life, are the words that sustain us and satisfy our souls, God. So I pray this morning that we would come to you seeking to drink from your living water, seeking to taste from the bread of life. And I pray, God, I pray that we would, that your spirit would reveal the words, the truth that you would have for us. I pray that you would write them on our heart. I pray that we would not be deceived, 
by the wisdom of this age, but we would know you, seek to love you and follow you with, you with all our hearts. Be with us over the next few minutes, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've been tracking with us through the book of 1 Corinthians since a few months ago, the content in this section that we read shouldn't be a surprise to you. We've heard these similar themes, right? We've heard about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of this age and how they interact with one another and how the wisdom of God is better than the wisdom of this age. We've heard that. We've, Paul has introduced to us this argument about how the wisdom of this age isn't better and the wisdom of specific people isn't better. It's God that does the saving, right? We're introduced to that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, when he said, some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Cephas or Apollos or I follow Christ. He introduced to us just the problem here that the wisdom of the world and wisdom of God clash. And there's nothing special about one person. It's God that does the work. It's his gospel. It's the word of his cross that calls sinners. It's not anybody specific. And, and this morning in our text, we see those arguments kind of coming to a head. We see Paul kind of putting a bow on these introductory arguments that he's making, these introductory themes, before he moves on to the next section. So let's, let's jump into our text and see what he has waiting for us, what, what's in store for us. So in verses 18 through 20, that's the first section we're going to look at, we see a warning. I mean, look at me at verse 18. Verse 18 starts with this stern, abrupt, challenging warning. Let no one deceive himself. It kind of pops off the page. Let no one deceive himself. Truth number one for this morning is this. We are in danger of self-deception. Jumps right off the page. We are in danger of deceiving ourselves, of self-deception. Self-deception is a real problem. I I would say it might be one of humanity's most common sins is when we deceive ourselves. The world, the wisdom of the world, wants us to believe differently than the the spiritual reality. The world wants us to believe that we're better off than we really are. That we're different than we really are. We deceive ourselves by listening to that. We deceive ourselves by listening to the wisdom of this age rather than the wisdom of from eternity past, God himself. And that was really one of the one, I mean, when, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve at the beginning, he wants them to be self-deceived, does he not? He tempts them. He says, do you want to be like God? You want to, you want to be like God and enjoy what God is like? Just be like him and, and, and receive what he has. Satan says, you got to disobey God, and then you'll, you'll get what you want. Don't obey God. He does not know what's best for you. He's, he, he doesn't want what's best for you. Disobey him, and you'll get what you want. He tempts them to deceive themselves. And that does not turn out well. We read the rest of the Bible. It doesn't turn out well. The wisdom of this age wants you to ignore God. It wants you to ignore God and to believe lies about him and yourselves. The wisdom of the age says, you want to be truly happy? You want to find happiness? Well, here's how you get happiness. Ignore what God has said. And then find happiness however you want to find happiness. 
ignoring the truth that God has in his word. He doesn't want what's best for you. God's a giant fuddy dud in the sky. He's got rules. He doesn't want what's best for you. To be truly happy means you disobey him. The world says you want true love. Well, go get it in whatever means necessary. Disregard what God has said in his word. He doesn't know what's best for you. The world, the wisdom of the world says you want to be accepted. Go get it. Go get acceptance in whatever means necessary. Yeah, God, God, I mean, the Bible, it's not God's word. That book says something, but disregard it. It's not, it's not God's word. This world is teeming with self-sufficient people pursuing selfish ambitions for the glory of self. And all around you this week, you've been surrounded by this. I, I know you have been. People pursuing power and prestige, popularity, promotion, wealth, pleasure, security. Those are the driving impulses in our culture. And the wisdom of this age wants you to buy in. The wisdom of this age wants you to say, yeah, I want that. And I'm going to pursue that. But from the beginning of our text, Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is begging you, don't buy in. Don't be deceived. Seek to know God and, and follow him as your Lord. James 1.22 says this. It's a well-known passage, but he says this. But be doers of the word and not just hearers only. If you do that, you are deceiving yourselves. We deceive ourselves when we hear God's word and don't Obey it or listen to it as it is. That's the warning. We are in danger of self-deception. Let me just say this. We can deceive ourselves. That's a, that's a legit thing that can happen. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're doing awesome when we're not. We can deceive other people. We can deceive other people to make it look like we got it all figured out. We can deceive our pastors to make it seem like we're good. But make no mistake, we cannot deceive God. You cannot deceive God. Just a precursor of what to come. What is to come? Verse 5 of chapter 4 says this. Do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes. On that day, verse 5, it says this. He who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You can't deceive God. He sees. He knows. Stark warning from the beginning. Don't be deceived. But, praise God in this text, he does provide a remedy for us. He provides a remedy. That's truth number two. Truth number two is this. The remedy to self-deception is to become a fool. The remedy to self-deception is to become a fool. Like I said, we started off verse 18 with this command, right? Let no one deceive himself if any among let's let's keep looking at verse 18 if anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age here's a second command same exact word that should kind of like same exact way in which he introduces it should like ring like oh something's going on let him become a fool that he may become wise the christian life is a life of paradox is it not in order to be saved, one of the first things that we have to do by the Spirit's prompting and help is to realize we can't save ourselves. We are in need of being saved. And there's nothing in this heart that can make myself be right with God. We have to admit, God, you need to do something. In order to, Jesus says, in order to find your life, you what? You lose your life. And in this text, he says, if you want to be truly wise, 
You don't seek to find wisdom in your own way and the wisdom of this age. No, what does he say? Become a fool. Listen, knowing God and loving God is foolishness to the world. It is. Like, just think about what we're doing right now. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, we get up early. 10 o'clock is early for some of us. We get up, we don't go to brunch like other like people do on some days. We, we don't watch, apparently NFL plays at 8.30 now. I didn't know that. We don't watch football. We don't sleep in. We don't, we don't indulge ourselves. We don't lounge around. But we come through the swamp to come to a place to be with God's people. Like we, we come together, people of different ethnicities and ages and, and social class systems. We come together to sing. That's foolishness to the world. Sing together, men and women in this room, joyfully singing about what God has done. We come together to pray, to acknowledge that we need a God. No, the God who's created all. We come together to, I mean, if you're overhearing, if you're a visitor and you might overhear conversations like this, hey, can you pray for me? I sinned this week. I need some, I, I, I really messed up. That's foolishness to the world. We come, uh, a few minutes ago, we passed around an offering plate and people gave of their hard-earned money. That's foolishness to the world. Gave of money. They didn't, we didn't indulge ourselves, but gave it for the glory of God. Think back to when you were not a Christian. Think back to when you were not a Christian. What if you stumbled in a room like this? You just walked in, someone invited you, and then you saw, like, however many people are in this room, 150 plus people singing about the blood of a guy named Jesus you'd say, what are they doing? Or you come on a Sunday morning and we're taking the Lord's Supper and we stand up and say, man, Jesus Christ shed his blood for you. Remember as we partake in his death and, and eat the symbolic bread symbolizing his body and drink of the juice which symbolizes his blood. If you have no idea what Christianity is, you'd say, probably, wow, what is happening right now? These people are foolish. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you're here this morning, and you, and you come to this place, and you look around and say, why am I here? These people look like fools. And you know we, what we want to say back? Yeah. Yeah. We're fools to the world. We are fools to the world. But in the sight of God, in the sight of God, we are wise. But we, Because we found a treasure. We found a treasure outside of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness. It's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the wisdom of this age. Become a fool. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, God, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He knows them. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they're futile. Become a fool and find all your treasure, all your hope in Christ. So after warning the Corinthians of warning them of, of not being deceived and reminding them of who they are in Christ in verses 18 through 20, Paul now turns his attention not to just them, but he turns their attention to their leaders in this text. In verses 21 of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, we see Paul correcting their understanding of church leadership. 
Once again, Paul starts with the command, just like he does in verse 18. Let no one be deceived. Let them become a fool. Verse 21, let no one, so let no one boast in men. As we've seen, the Corinthians often boasted in men. That's one of the reasons he's writing is because that's what they were doing. It was more, I read that passage in, in chapter 1, verse 12, when it says, some of you say, I follow Paul or I follow Cephas. Listen, that was more than just like, I like that dude. That was them prescribing worth and value to a particular person in the church. But what does Paul say? Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all are yours. All things are yours, including leaders in the church. They're given for you. So his command here is don't restrict yourself from someone in the church who is leading just because you've got your personal preferences, just because you've got your guy that you follow. Don't restrict yourself from the rest. You don't, Paul's saying you don't belong to just them. Actually, you belong to God, first and foremost. That's way better than belonging to any dude. You belong to God, first and foremost. And actually, you don't belong to them. He says the leaders belong to you. All things are yours. That's the argument he's making. That leads us to truth number three. Truth number three is this. Church leaders are gifts from God. Church leaders are gifts from God. Now, I know none of us in this room, I don't think, are foolish enough to say, well, I follow this pastor, or I, I, I got this guy. That's my guy that I prescribe to. I know no one's saying that out loud, but how subtly can this, this idea creep into our thoughts and our minds? How easy can it be for our impulses to assign worth or value to people depending on our personal preferences at the detriment of our own spiritual health? Paul says, you don't belong to them. You don't belong to them. Actually, they belong to you. They're gifts from God for you. Don't rob yourself of God's gifts just because you like someone better than the other person. There's much more collective wisdom with multiple qualified pastors in a church. There's much more collective wisdom with qualified deacons who love you and serve you. There's much more there's way, much, way more wisdom in a, a lot of qualified community group teachers who love you and meet in your homes every week. Don't restrict yourself. Paul continues to correct their view of who their leaders are. As we've seen, leaders are gifts from God. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, don't regard them as, as your guy. Don't, don't regard them as one that you need to follow. But this is what he says in verse 4. Don't do that. Don't regard him as that. But verse 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, sorry. This is how one should regard us. With the us here in verse 1, Paul is identifying himself with the leaders in the church. He's identifying himself with that. He says, don't, don't view yourself as following Paul or me or whoever. But you should regard leaders this way. So I want to say, as we continue on with this text, He's writing specifically to church leaders here. He's writing specifically to pastors and deacons and, and other leaders in the church. But the ramifications are for all of us, are they not? 
What do pastors and deacons and church leaders do? They follow Christ. They seek to set an example in their Christ-likeness and conduct. They teach, they disciple, and they set an example to the rest of the flock as they seek to disciple and be Christ-like and follow Christ. So listen up. It's for all of us, not just for pastors. The, the ramifications, the, the truths are for us here, even though he's specifically writing to pastors. So let's look back. How should one regard us? Verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Truth number four this morning is this. We are to be servants and stewards. We are to be servants and stewards. Writing first and foremost to church leaders, but it applies to all of us as we seek to follow leaders as they follow Christ, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. But specifically, to be a leader in a church is not first and foremost about what I'm doing right now. It's not about standing up in front of people, according to Paul. It's not about having influence. It's not about sharing your gifts and your wisdom with this generation that needs you. It's not about your leadership strategies. It's not about your effectiveness. But what is on the job description? What is it that's on the job description for church leaders, according to Paul? To be a servant of Christ. To be a slave of Christ. And this would have been a shock to the Corinthians. Remember, we've talked about it in the first sermon months ago, that the Corinthian culture was that of honor and shame. Listen, uh, Brandon read this quote when he, when he preached on first, when he inter- did the introductory sermon on 1 Corinthians. Ben Witherington helpfully writes this when he talks about the culture of the Corinthians. This is what he said. Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people thus lived within an honor-shame cultural orientation, where public recognition was often more important than facts, and where the worst thing, the worst thing that could happen, was one re- one's reputation to be publicly tarnished. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others, one's accomplishments, hence the self-promoting public inscriptions. The Corinthian culture says, you want to be a leader? Promote the heck out of yourself. Promote yourself. Maybe lie about it and bolster yourself up. But what does God's wisdom say? You want to be a leader? Publicly tarnish your reputation. Become a servant. Don't promote yourself. Strive to be a nobody. Being a leader in the church means that you do not serve yourself at all. You don't serve yourself, but you serve God. God has the final say over your life. God has the final authority. God has the final say over ambitions. God has the final say of where we go, who we lead, and what we preach and lead towards. And we can look around the landscape of the global church, look around the world, and see how sometimes we get this kind of messed up. I mean, we just get on social media. If I have to look at one more ad for church on social media, where the guy or whoever's doing it is just promoting himself and making himself look awesome. He can come to our church because I'm awesome. We're awesome. It's kind of gross. <laughs> but if we want to lead the way the Bible prescribes us to lead, we lead like this, Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This Christ Jesus, who though he was God, humbled himself to become a man. And then humbled himself to the point of death. Even death. That's the example that we have of a leader. God himself putting on this stuff, humanity's flesh, and then dying on, a de- uh, on the cross that we, he did not deserve. Listen, in our, attempt, in our attempt to be used by God, let us not, as we like say, oh, I need to achieve this and go up here and achieve this, this level of success as we climb the ladder. Let's not pass up Christ as he's making his way down in humility and service. Of course, this applies not only to pastors and deacons and leaders in the church, but this applies to all of us. So I want you to think about if you, however you're serving, however you're leading in our church, all of us are leading something. All of us are discipling people. How does this attitude, if you were to see yourself as a servant of Christ, first and foremost, how does this attitude affect the way you do your ministry and the way you live your life? Here's a couple of examples I just thought of. How, let's say, uh, how, do, how does serving, I mean, how does seeing yourself as a servant affect the way you view serving in nursery or the children's ministry? Well, first of all, we stop to see it as drudgery and more like delight, knowing that we're glorifying God and building up his church by changing a diaper. We're building up his church. You know why? Because maybe somebody comes to church. Maybe a mom comes to church and she, first time she's come to church, puts her kid in the nursery so she can hear the message and hear the gospel. And by you taking care of her kid and changing a diaper, she hears the gospel. Take care. I mean, the, the, who cares if you get recognition for it is what I'm trying to say. Who cares? God sees it. How does seeing yourself as a servant affect the way we do music up here? Well, first and foremost, we should not care about how we sound or how we are perceived. Listen, what makes Sunday morning successful for our music team is not if somebody comes up and says, you sounded really good today. No, 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 no. What makes it successful for us is if you guys sing. And praise God, you do sing. You do awesome at that. We're here to serve God and serve you. How does seeing yourself as a servant affect the way you disciple somebody one-on-one? Well, it means that you never care. You don't care if no one ever knows about it. You don't care if if you never get recognition for the hard work that you've done. You don't care. You're not saying, hey, by the way, I discipled that guy. No, that's not what we do. I mean, how many, I know I've experienced this. I'm looking around the room. I know some people have experienced this where you pour out your life for somebody, right? You're meeting with them regularly, regularly. You're like sharing your faith. You're like taking time on your day to read the Bible with them, praying over them, laboring with them, and then nothing's really happening. It's kind of showing up, and it's like, man, I'm not sure they're getting this. And then they meet with somebody else, and somebody else says something that's like kind of elementary, like, hey, Jesus loves you. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And a light bulb pops up. And there's that little thing in our minds where it's like, wait a second. I've been laboring with you for years, and it's that person who gets to reap the harvest? No, no, no. If we're servants of Christ, we'll say, praise God. <laughs> praise God that he did a work in your life and that he even used me to play a part of it at all. Praise God. Wait, wait, wait. Who cares if people say good job? God knows and he sees what we'll see. Leaders are not only described as servants of Christ here. Let's keep looking at verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries 
of God. Servants and stewards. Nice little sticky way to remember who we are. We're servants and we're stewards. To be a leader means you are stewarding something. To be a steward means that you are managing something. You manage a household, you manage gifts, or, or, or you're just a manager. So specifically, what does we say? We're, we're to steward the mysteries of God, or we're to steward the message of the gospel. That's the mysteries of God. The mystery long ago that was hidden is now revealed in Christ. What's the mysteries of God? That Christ is who he says he is. That he lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for sinners like me and you and shed his blood so that we can have life in him and life eternal. To steward that message, to steward the gospel message, first of all means that we hold it dear. We know it, we love it, we cling to it, we love we're to love the gospel more than we love anything else. But also, it means that the message that we proclaim is not our message. It's not a message that we came up with, but it's Christ crucified. A stumbling block to those who don't care, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. To steward the gospel means that we don't seek to, to save people or win people based on like how clever we are. Or we don't seek to to like win people by like how awesome our leadership style is or big events or rockin' music on a Sunday morning. I just sounded old, rockin' music. Wow, uh, excuse me. Uh, no, 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 you preach a gospel. You preach the gospel message that's not yours, but it's been entrusted to you. Let's steward it well. Listen, and what's required of stewards? Look at me at verse 2. It is required that stewards who manage the gospel message, it's required that they be found faithful. Not innovative, not genius level, but just faithful. <clears throat> to steward the gospel means that we don't just talk about it on Sundays, but it permeates through every fiber of our being. It gives life to every ministry we do. It gives life to every conversation that we have because Christ has died and has risen again for us. It affects the way we lead our families, spend our time and money. It affects who we lead towards and how we lead. But of course, just like being a servant, being a steward of the gospel has implications for all of us in this room. Brothers and sisters, steward the gospel faithfully. God has entrusted his saving message to you. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Will we be like in Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable. We might be familiar with it. Jesus tells this parable of three people who get entrusted talents, and two of them take it and invest it, and they get more back on what they were given. They were faithful stewards, but then Let's read about what happens with them. Verse 23, after they are faithful with what God has given them, it says this. How are they met? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what two of them get because they steward it well. But one of them gets ta a talent and sits on it, buries it in the ground because he's fearful of what's going to happen. May we not be like that. May we be a people who take the message of the gospel and don't sit on it but, and not, not, not share it, not, not let it affect us, not steward it well. 
that person who doesn't steward it well is met with this in Matthew 25, 26, you wicked and slothful servant. Basically, what have you done with this gift that I entrusted to you? We've been entrusted with the gospel message, so let's get after it. Let's get to work and steward it well for the glory of God. There's one more correction, though, that Paul makes about how one should regard church leaders. We'll just jump right into it. Truth number five is this. We are justified by Christ alone. We are justified by Christ alone. This might seem like it comes out of nowhere, but as we read verses three and four, you should be able to see it beautifully. We're justified by Christ alone. Verse three says this. Paul, after he says, servants of Christ, stewards, stewards be found faithful. Verse three But with me, Paul says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. For me, this is one of the most freeing and helpful texts in all of Scripture. Paul says here as he's leading, hey guys, If you think I'm awesome or if you think I'm the worst, it doesn't affect me at all. He says, I know some of you love me, think you belong to me. It means nothing. I know some of you are appalled by me. The fact that I call myself a servant means you think I'm a crazy person. Your opinion does not matter. That's what he says because he's being faithful to God. Leaders should not be concerned about how people perceive them. The fear of man can lead us to do harmful things but look at this paul not only says that you can't judge me but what does he say in verse three in fact i don't even judge myself is what he says he doesn't even care what he thinks about himself and why how can he say this is it just because paul is like this super confident guy who's just like built different and just really confident no not at all verse four he says i'm not aware of anything against myself It is the Lord who judges me. Paul can live his life with clear conscience because he's following after the Lord and being faithful. And that frees him up to be a servant of other people, to steward the mystery of gospel well. It frees him up to not care about what people are saying about him behind his back. And it frees him up from the, the, the thoughts in his mind of, I'm not doing enough. I'm the worst. What are people thinking about me? Why? Because it's the Lord who judges him. Not man, it's the Lord who judges him. And what's the verdict? What is the verdict for all of us who are in Christ when the Lord judges us? Not guilty. Not guilty because what Christ has done for us. No condemnation because of Christ's shed blood. Tim Keller, he he has a helpful book on this called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness on this passage. Listen to one of his uh, one of his. One of his quotes from that book, this is what he says. You see, the verdict is in. Not guilty, free in Christ. And now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and he accepts me, I do not have to do things to build up my resume. I do not have to do things that make me look good. I can do things just for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. Not so I can feel better about myself. 
not so I can just fill up an emptiness in my life. You live for the approval of other people, and that will kind of destroy you on the inside. I can attest. It goes up and down. But if you live because of the approval that's already yours in Christ, it frees you to live a life free to serve other people. Listen, church leaders, pastors, deacons, us in the room, your justification is not found in what people think of you. Your justification is not found in the applause that you may or may not get. All of us in the room, our justification is not found in how awesome our lessons are that we make for community groups. Our justification is not found in shout-outs that may or may not come. Our justification is not found in our service. It's not found in our stewarding. It's not found in your unique gifting or calling. Your justification is found outside of yourself. And that's good news. That's good news because what's in here... But what's in Christ is perfect. Christ alone declares you innocent. Christ alone declares you right in the sight of God. And when we come to grips with this by the Spirit's help, when we come to grips with uh, what's good about me is actually not me, but Christ standing in the gap for me, when we understand this, that means we can truly live a life of humility. We can truly serve other people. We can, listen, Christian humility... Christian humility is not thinking less about yourself, but Christian humility is thinking about yourself less. It's not about thinking, oh, I'm the worst. I'm the worst sinner. God, what are you doing? No, it's Christ is good. (laughs) I'm not even thinking about my needs. God loves me. What can man do to me? And this obviously has ramifications for all of us in this room. Do you want to be free? from self-deprecating thoughts in the mind that just plague you? Do you want to be free from the pride that cripples you, hoping to be seen by other people? Do you want to be free to actually serve the Lord just for the joy of serving the Lord? Then dwell on Christ and not yourself. Listen to Tim Keller once again, helpfully writes this when he says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself, it is an end to such, a thoughts, such thoughts as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Christ alone justifies you, not your worth. Christ alone. But after the Lord, after he claims this, that it's God who justifies him, let's look at our last verse, verse 5. He says this, Therefore, because it's not you who judges, therefore don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Verse 5, verse 5 is a gold mine. Within verse 5, there is a very sobering reminder, a very sobering reminder that the day is coming when God will judge every leader for his or her intentions. The day is coming when everyone will face judgment for our intentions. What was really going on in here? And that's sobering, because I know I don't have perfect intentions all the time. 
And I'm willing to bet, I'm not even willing to bet, I know, none of us have perfect intentions 24-7. We can deceive ourselves, we can deceive others, but we can't deceive God. He will bring to light everything, everything hidden in darkness, everything that's in here that you don't want anybody else to know about. But as we keep reading verse 5, I find it incredibly surprising. Let's read verse 5 again. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Last sentence. Then each one will receive his what? Commendation from God. When I first read this, no joke, I read it. And, and when I read I was reading to myself this week as I was beginning to study, I literally read, then each one will receive his condemnation from God. That's what I read to myself. And I looked back and said, that's not condemnation there. That's commendation. Like I expect, I don't know, it says what's really in here. Uh, not freedom of self-forgiveness there. Uh, <laughs> going back to here, God will judge what's really going on in our hearts. But what is waiting for us? Not condemnation, but commendation. Commendation means, it's crazy to say, a special praise. So what's waiting for us when God judges everything that goes on in our hearts? Praise from God. Even though our best efforts fall short, even though our hearts are wicked and we have mixed intentions at best, we will receive commendation just simply because we believed in God. Peter says this similarly in in 1 Peter 5. He's charging the elders there, and he says this. Elder well, shepherd well, pastor well, because when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Of course, that not only applies to church leaders. This applies to every Christian. Truth number six, and our last truth is this. We will receive an eternal reward for faithfulness we will receive an eternal reward. God will bring to light everything hidden. Everything will become as bright as day. And he will show mercy and grace upon you. Christian, you will receive commendation from God on that last day, not because you're awesome, not because you did things the right way and had the best intentions, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ himself stands in your place. Because of your obedience, because you had faith in Jesus. And on that last day, Jesus, whenever we stand before him, Jesus does not say to you, like we read in Matthew 25, he doesn't say this, well done, good and innovative leader. He doesn't say, well done, good and dynamic speaker. He doesn't say, well done, good and approachable man or woman. He doesn't say, well done, good and, 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 and altogether teacher. He doesn't say, well done, good and effective persuader. What does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. This is how we ought to be regarded, brothers and sisters, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that stewards of stewards that they be found faithful. Let's pray. The verdict is in, and the verdict for us is not guilty because of Christ's shed blood on our behalf. So, God, I pray this morning as we seek to respond, that we would respond by bringing you praise. You are worthy of all of our praise because of what you've done for us. Help us live in light of eternity. And, God, I pray for each of us in this room that we would see ourselves as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. Not awesome, not the greatest thing, but faithful. Free us up to live a life of self-forgetfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.